0: Alright, 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 alright. Welcome back to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser known true crime stories. First of all, I would like to apologize. I am a day and a half-ish late. I know I said this weekend, and it's now late Monday night, but it was a holiday weekend, and I also had a dental visit on Friday that kind of slowed me down a little bit, so I apologize off the rip. Anywho, thank you guys again for lending me your ear. I'm so thankful for you guys. Everything has been really beautiful here in Anywhere USA, and I'm really hoping that all is well with you. I'm super stoked to be back to bring you another episode. Oh man, you guys, this is going to be a doozy. But before we get to that, I'd like to say Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what's up. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's your shout-out time. Thank you for tuning in. Platt, Aberdeen, Yankton, Sioux Falls, and Brandon, South Dakota. High Scarborough, Sanford, Freeport, Ellsworth, Augusta, and South Portland, Maine. Aloha, Kailua, Kona, Analuu, Waikiki, Hilo, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. Welcome back East Fairfield, Burlington, Milton, Rutland, and Shelbourne, Vermont. Howdy Cheyenne, Gillette, and Casper, Wyoming. Hello Omaha, Fremont, Le- Lincoln, Seward, and Grand Island, Nebraska. Thank you all for listening throughout England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, New Zealand, Guam, Singapore, Belize, Lebanon, and Guam. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social accounts that can be found in the description box with my references per the usual. So let's just get into it. Last episode, I discussed the gruesome wood chipper murder of Healy Crafts. For today's episode, I am going to go a little fangirl, a little cuckoo banan, when I discuss this episode. I'll be discussing what had happened aboard retired NBA star Bison Dele's catamaran in Tahiti. So, Bison Dele was born Brian Carson Williams in Fresno, California to Platter's singer Eugene Gino Williams Jr. and Patricia Phillips. Excuse me, my voice, its a little bit hoarse. Patricia was a young bride, and Gino's singing career had taken off after being discovered at a nightclub by the popular R&B group. While Brian was the couple's second son in roughly two years, his birth was special because he shared his birthday with his big brother Kevin Eugene, who was born April 6th, 1967 for Kevin and 1969 for Brian. The family traveled the world with the band, but the marriage was short-lived. Patricia divorced Eugene and settled back in Fresno to raise the boys. In 1975, she married Ron Baker, a man who was described as a strict disciplinarian, who said, who was said to have berated the boys frequently as their mother turned a blind eye. Patricia would say that both Gino and Ron were quote very strict. As adolescent boys, <clears throat> both enjoyed playing sports. Kevin ran, swam played basketball, as well as water polo, while Brian was an impressive runner. His whole thing was more so not the track and field, but cross country. He could run for days. Um, although Kevin enjoyed partaking in a vast array of athletics, his asthma and diabetes would hinder him from pursuing any career as an athlete and basically it was like he you know he he focused on other things so when his asthma and diabetes began to hinder him from partaking in athletics he focused on things like playing chess with Old men at the Greek cafe. He was extremely intelligent and funny. His his interest included math and history. Kevin possessed a keen insight also into the human condition. He was described as being gentle and giving. Though he was also said to be one of those people where there were no barriers for Kevin. While in junior high, Patricia's marriage to Ron Baker ended. So, the boys, because their father's music group, the Platters, were based out of, like, Nevada. Yeah, Nevada. They, you know, would go between the states, um, between Nevada and California, between mom and dad. So... While in junior high, after the marriage had broken up, you know, um, Brian was running. It wasn't until 10th grade that Brian's growth spurts steered him into playing basketball. Skillfully dribbling his way towards his future career at Santa Monica Catholic High School, Brian excelled at the sport. The Catholic High School would would go on to retire Brian's basketball jersey later on. Bryan's senior year, though, he attended Bishop Gorman High School in Las Vegas, Nevada. While playing for the Bishop Gorman Gales, Brian averaged 17.3 points, 12.7 rebounds, 2.1 assists, 2.5 steals, and 9.1 blocks per game, shooting 57.7% from the field. After high school, Brian began playing basketball collegiately at the University of Maryland first, you know, his freshman year. Brian sat out the following season as he transferred to the University of Arizona. Brian played at the University of Arizona for two seasons before being drafted by the NBA in 1991. So I have some, for for those of you who need a little bit of perspective, um, and so, for some of my older heads who might remember this, this is quite impressive because Brian was the 10th pick in the first round. And that year, the first round draft picks were number one, Larry, Grandma Ma Johnson. I'm showing my age today because I loved the commercials. He played for Charlotte out of Nevada. Next, we had Kenny Anderson, who, for my pop culture ladies who love the VH1, if you watched Basketball Wives or uh, Real World Los Angeles, Tammy Roman was married to Kenny Anderson. He was also drafted with Dikembe Mutumbo, who was drafted by Denver to this day that Sunday playoff game in 1994 when Dikembe Mutombo and the Denver Nuggets beat the Seattle Supersonics in Seattle, and Dikembe lay on the floor with the ball above his head. That is forever a part of Denver sports history. Okay, Uh, he was also drafted within that first round with Rick Fox. I love Rick Fox, he's so beautiful oh my goodness but so that's just to give you some you know just to give you some of the players in which he was drafted with at the time so he was drafted to the orlando magic shaquille o'neal would end up being drafted in 1992 i did look that up because i was like "Mm, yeah i'm a shack over there so brian played for the magic for two seasons before going on to play for the denver nuggets from 1993 to 95 during his time playing for Denver, I personally had the opportunity to watch Brian Williams play as number eight, along with number three, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, my birthday buddy, you know. While I was a teenager at the time, my perception of him was that he was a, that he was a kind and polite giant. I wanted to know what Brian was like during his time playing for the Denver Nuggets, so I recently inquired with a person who worked with Brian during his time as a Nugget, my godfather, who was one of Brian's assistant coaches for the Denver Nuggets, Mike Evans. Mike described Brian as being super intelligent. Mike said that Brian loved poetry as well as learning about Native American history and culture, especially that of his Cherokee heritage. Mike said that Brian was very charitable to organizations close to his heart, including those that involved the Native American culture and community. He also said that Brian was varied in his talents and passions. So Brian played the saxophone, violin, and trumpet. He also mentioned that Brian was extremely philanthropic. His philanthropic nature was that of a doer, not just a giver. Ever fearless Brian obtained his pilot's license. Brian helped dig wells or water wells in foreign impoverished countries, Mike would go on to say. The water projects Mike was referring to were in Lebanon. Uh, Brian became a minor partner in a water treatment complex in Lebanon because one of his best friends from university had come from Lebanon. And every summer, Brian would travel to Lebanon and worked with others to bring clean water to areas in need. Mike also said that Brian was, um, on a personal level, insecure at times about who he was, but that he had a big heart. For the basketball fans, Mike reminded me that Brian was very athletic and a strong finisher around the basket using his six foot ten. Two hundred fifty-pound frame to south paw the ball into the basket. Lastly, Mike said that Brian was a ladies' man, and I gave this part a goog. At one point in his career, Brian was linked to dating her Madge justy Madonna. So she was kind of busy in the nineties because I do remember she was linked to Dennis Rodman as well. Love her. Mm. So, description-wise, he was a light-skinned male with intoxicating green eyes that held mystery, wisdom, and charm behind them. His smile and laugh were amazing. Brian was unlike most of the other players in the league at the time. While many players looked at their careers in terms of longevity in the game, Brian's interests were so eclectic and what he preferred to be doing that his career was less about legacy and more so a means of income to pursue those interests, passions, and hobbies. A deep thinker, avant-garde, and free-spirited, Brian's antics would become that of legend among the league. Brian was a renaissance man, a philosophical thinker and lover of life and experiencing all he could. A lover of jazz, Brian loved Wenton Marsalis and Miles Davis. He also was not afraid to have deep conversations that ranged from politics and race to philosophy. Brian had a fondness for Nietzsche. Dog-eared works he read often were beyond good and evil, and he was heavily influenced by Thus Spake Thanthustra, his favorite quote being, quote, we should consider every day lost on which we have not danced at least once. Depending on who tells the story, Brian could bike from, say, Phoenix to Denver for practice with just a credit card or clip a practice in Los Angeles with his personal plane. From playing with the Chicago Bulls to backpacking in Europe and running with the Bulls of Pamplona, Brian was labeled an eccentric in the league. In 1995, after two seasons in Denver, Brian would go on to play with the Los Angeles Clippers for one season. In 1997, after rehabbing a knee injury, Brian would join the Chicago Bulls nine games before the reg- regular season ended. Brian would prove to be an instrumental part of the team as they charged through the playoff season and winning the team's fifth NBA championship. I was like a super diehard Bulls fan in the 90s. Like Mike, fuck be like Mike. I loved that Gatorade campaign also. Anyways, I also loved Penny Hardaway. Los Lobos. Yes. After winning the 1997 NBA Championships, Brian moved on to play for the Detroit Pistons as the team's highest paid player. Brian signed a staggering $45 million contract, seven-year contract with the team. In 1998, Brian legally changed his name to Bison Dele, his new name representing his Native American heritage on his mother's side, as well as paying homage to the first person on his mother's side of the family to be enslaved. While it seemed as though Bison's NBA career had many more years, he grew tired of essentially being ping-ponged throughout the league from team to team uh he had a strained relationship with the nba and the organization as a whole and after careful examination of his finances i'm sure he decided to walk away from the remaining five years left on his contract shortly before the start of the 1999-2000 season so brian retired from the nba breaking his contract with the 5 years left walking away from 36.45 million dollars to find to find his pursuit of happiness, to find his passion. While Brian was experiencing the roller coaster of success and fame for his career, his older brother Kevin didn't share in the same successes as Bison. But the two were very close. It was said that there was a rivalry between the brothers throughout their lives. But Bison always looked up to and after his big brother, supporting his get-rich-quick schemes to quote, you know, people that were in Bison's circle um, or his business ventures. Also, you know, so that I can play. I want to even the scales. I don't know. Okay. I don't know, uh, helping his brother financially and encouraging him in 1998, when Bison legally changed his name, Kevin also legally changed his name, adopting the new name, Miles DeBoard. Having been eclipsed by his brother's looming shadow, the brother's relationship had been compared to Cain and Abel throughout the years, um, in the articles that I've read when bison's professional basketball career took off he the baby of the family was able to give back in many ways like financially supporting his father brother and mother whom he enabled to go back to school so that she could receive her degree in anthropology through ucla um i also read in an article and this is kind of a sidebar because i did not place this in my script there was a time when bison first started making money and became really successful that he showed up with a brand new motorcycle for his father that cost you know a nice sum of money his father who at the at this point was now driving limousines and no longer singing and had developed um, an addiction to cocaine had said to Bison, That's nice, but next time the money is better appreciated, which crushed Bison. Okay? So psychologically he had a lot of rejection in his in his life and he and it was said by one of his best friends also not in the script that you know his whole life growing up he was he believed that he was not wanted his birth was not wanted he was not beloved it wasn't until he became a professional basketball player and started to make a name for himself and money that he was appreciated amongst the fold you know as a whole it's also said that there were two instances in which he gave his brother outright you know fifty thousand dollars or whatever it was you know to help him out so he had been doing this he had been trying to support his family in many ways while articles are vague about the relationship between the brothers, um, some are vague and some just say, you know, it was tumultuous. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't know the dynamic, but I can only assume that it was tumultuous. Can you imagine what it would be like for Kevin who, first of all, I'm sure it was cute to have been born and then have his baby brother be born on his birthday um to share a birthday for the you know for a while there i'm sure that was great but after a while it kind of felt like the two probably were like you know there was a competition there and then when bison began to take off and kept, you know miles didn't the resentment began to build so Huh What I gathered is that the brothers loved each other unconditionally, but the scales weren't balanced at times. When Bison became financially able to help Miles, he did, but it has been speculated that Bison, who suffered from mental health issues and two reported suicide attempts, may have begun to feel as though Miles was taking advantage of him financially. These feelings, and perhaps also now being newly retired from the NBA, And a free agent of the world, free to travel, unencumbered, brought Bison to the decision to cut back on or cut off altogether the finances he had been investing in his brother. Bison's man, one of his, you know, one of Bison's managers, Dwight Manley said quote it's no secret that brian had psychological problems in order to deal with those problems he developed a superiority complex being in charge of everything the master of his domain a private man throughout his career while he'd been known as my godfather put it as a ladies man there was one woman who captioned bison's heart early on in his career there, were, there was a group of 30 people meditating and playing music during the birth of Serena Midnight Carlin um, when she was born April 4th, 1972 in New York City. Her head crowned at 1158 p.m. April 3rd and her feet followed at 1202 a.m. April 4th, being where her unique middle name was derived from. After her parents divorced, Serena and her mother relocated from New York to Berkeley, California, where she would grow up. A strikingly beautiful raven-haired woman with bright almond-shaped blue eyes, Serena shared Bison's love for music, poetry, and exploring the world. Their paths would cross when Serena was the college roommate of Bison's high school girlfriend. In the eight years that Bison and Serena had known each other, the two had been friends for the first seven years before deciding to take their friendship to the next level and become a couple. Another sidebar real quick, I also did not include this in the script, but I also read that at one point in time, Serena was at a nightclub and she was approached by His Purple Majesty, prince and prince took her under his wing and employed her as his personal assistant but you know after a while serena wanted to go her own way and you know live her life some more and see what the world had to offer so she left paisley park and all that that had to offer but wow so you know, she wasn't about the razzle dazzle and the 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 glitz and glamour. She was not one who was necessarily. She wasn't like one of the groupies that would just try to glom onto a player because of the things that he has and what he can do for her. So there was that. Um, it was a while before she even found out that he actually that he was actually a player in the NBA. So. After learning how to sail and retiring, Bison purchased a catamaran he named the Hakuna Matata, which means no worries from the movie The Lion King, with the intentions of sailing the seven seas. It was while he was sailing on his catamaran that he called Serena in December 2001, asking her to join him on his voyage. At the time, Serena was living in Manhattan, and working towards obtaining her real estate broker's license so i might be slightly off with the dates but it was post 9-11 and it was right before 2002 uh bison asked serena to join him in australia and sail with him for a few weeks while the couple were on a layover before leaving for hawaii The couple spent time 10 miles away from Tahiti on the Isle of Morea. With the couple's five-week adventure coming to an end, Bison asked Serena to stay longer. While Serena was described as a conservative young woman who took her responsibilities and priorities seriously, her family knew basically that her relationship with Bison must certainly have grown deeper because, you know, she ended up staying a little bit longer. Bison would tell others that Serena was his soulmate. And Serena was a woman who believed in soulmates and, you know, all of that, all of the things that go along with that. Five weeks lapsed into seven before Serena returned to Manhattan telling Bison that she had to get back to her life and that she needed to get back to work so she could pay her rent and continue to pursue her her real estate broker's license. While she tried to keep her feelings under wraps, she was developing genuine feelings for Bison, but she had issues with the notion of just dropping everything and gallivanting with this man of status and means. It wasn't long, though, before Serena received a letter in the mail that contained a check um, for $50,000, and the note attached said something along the lines of, quote, Here's what I think of your financial situation, XOXO by Sandele. Um... Serena told those who were close to her that even with the $50,000 check in her bank account, she didn't feel necessarily comfortable with making the decision to just drop everything, you know, and go sailing around the world with bison for an extended amount of time. Nonetheless, after, you know, contending with her feelings and also consulting with her friends, family, and most importantly, her mother, Her mother told her daughter, essentially, that in 10 years' time, she wouldn't want to live with the doubt of not seeing what Bison's proposal had to offer. Shortly thereafter, Serena decided to take Bison up on his, you know, proposal and flew to New Zealand where the couple planned to island hop. In order to find out who Serena really was as a person, she was able to leap blindly and follow her heart. Serena's mother would say that it would appear that the couple was in a genuinely beautiful and loving relationship. It was just beginning to develop. I mean, like they had roots based in their friendship, you know, that had grown, but their actual love story was just starting to 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 blossom. Very sweet. Uh, you know, Uh, The two seemed happy as they ventured out into parts unknown hand in hand. The two were in their own little world aboard the 55-foot catamaran when one evening, they were surprised by Miles, who had shown up to, quote, mend his relationship with his baby brother. Code four, he needed money. Um, is what a lot of people have speculated. So I'm not going to be, you know, I don't know, but that's that's what the word on the street was. It felt as if, you know, besides wanting to mend the rift, it had been, you know, some time since the two had seen each other and, you know, Miles potentially may have needed some money. So... Initially, Serena was kind and welcoming, but as Miles' drop-in you know, drop aboard the Kakuna Matata drew on, tensions on the boat began to mount. Serena became increasingly uncomfortable as this first wave of tension hit them due to Miles' presence. Ultimately, Serena told Bison that if Miles stayed, she would have to go bison wasn't necessarily okay with miles being there either and you know he told serena hey let's just leave let's go on a little trip to tahiti and the two decided to fly away for some alone time with the couple off to tahiti miles was left aboard the hakuna matata with the board's cap with the boat's captain where the plans were for those two to sail for three weeks before meeting Bison and Serena in Tahiti. While in Tahiti during the month of May 2002, Bison and Serena were able to rekindle the spark that had been temporarily snuffed out by Miles's abrupt visit. The couple did things together like snorkeling and, you know, they explored The islands together, enjoying the time away from the boat, and they began making plans for their next leg of their journey. Serena said that she'd always wanted to travel to Kauai, Hawaii, and Bison agreed, you know, to it. While planning the trip, Serena called a close friend and made plans to meet up once she and Bison had arrived to Hawaii. As the couple planned, they also mulled how they were going to ditch their third wheel miles which bison knew would be difficult after three weeks time the trio were reunited in tahiti as the boat's captain docked the hakuna matata for the trip to hawaii bison brought on seasoned ship's captain bertrand saldo who had a reputation for being an accomplished sailor as soon as the trip to hawaii began though miles began butting heads with everyone from the captain to serena bison told miles that when they were to reach hawaii they were going to part ways which bothered miles beyond measure while bison was torn between you know cutting his brother off and going his own way he knew that it was necessary for his happiness On July 6, 2002, the Hakuna Matata set sail for its voyage to Hawaii. The journey from Tahiti to Hawaii was scheduled to take two weeks, but after the catamarans launch, no one was able to reach the occupants on the boat. As Serena's friends and family began to take notice that they hadn't heard from her when she was scheduled to arrive in Hawaii, they began to slowly panic. Serena had made it a habit of calling home, you know, whilst on the catamaran this whole time that she had been traveling with bison and, you know, now it was radio silence. After five weeks of this radio silence, a phone call was received at certified mint by a gentleman addressing himself as Brian Williams. The gentleman caller stated that he needed to purchase roughly $150,000 in gold coins. The caller said he would send a check and collect the coins in a few days. When Certified Mint received the check, it cleared. A close friend and manager to Bison, Kevin Porter, received an alarming call from Bison's bank after, you know... This check cleared, and the banker informed Kevin of this check and asked him if Bison had begun investing in certified mint. Alarmed because he hadn't heard from Bison, he called the phone numbers associated with the check used to purchase the gold coins. When Kevin called, he was aghast at the voicemail recording. While the voice on the voicemail claimed to be, quote, B, the voice absolutely was not Bison. Kevin reported this information to the Phoenix PD, who decided to set up a sting. When Miles entered certified Mint impersonating Bison, he was apprehended. While being questioned on September 5th, 2002, Miles told police that while he had used his brother's identification to pick up the gold coins at certified mint, he was not trying to defraud or commit identity theft. Miles told detectives that the check for $152,000 had been written out and signed by Bison because the Hakuna Matata was under siege by Polynesian pirates and the $150,000 in gold was the ransom. Unable to deny the possibility that Miles was telling the truth because pirates are actually a fucking thing, Miles was let go as the angle to the investigation was looked into, but the coins were not given to Miles. Six days later, on September 11th, the Hakuna Matata was located in a different location, in a different Tahitian port. The vessel had been repainted and the nameplate removed. While there was no evidence on the boat, uh, while there was no evidence of the boat's captain or the inhabitants of the vessel, investigators found zero evidence also after inspecting the boat of any foul play. The million dollar question was where were Bertrand, Bison, and Serena? Witnesses was- could come, or would come forward to say that they'd seen Miles in port on the Hakuna Matata, and when asked about Bison and Serena's whereabouts, he would tell them that the two were staying in a hotel while he stayed on the catamaran alone. It was obvious to investigators both in Tahiti and in the U.S. that Miles' story wasn't adding up, and the tale of pirates on the high seas was just that, a tall tale. With the walls closing in on Miles he was beginning to feel the pressure mount with the detectives now investigating the case as a suspicious disappearance miles traveled to San Francisco to the San Francisco area to visit his girlfriend while there he recounted his events of what happened on the catamaran Miles told his girlfriend that he and Bison got into a heated argument on the boat. At some point, the two began to scuffle, and Serena attempted to separate the two when she was accidentally knocked down hard, striking her head on the gunwale of the boat, breaking her neck. Miles said that in a rage, Bison threatened to kill him. When the captain came down and saw Serena's lifeless body, he advised the brothers that the authorities needed to be notified miles said that bison panicked and murdered the captain beating him repeatedly with a wrench miles who had brought a gun aboard the hakuna matata said he then turned his gun on his brother in self-defense shooting and killing him Miles contended that he had no choice in the matter; it was kill or be killed. He then told his girlfriend no one would believe what had transpired on the boat, so he tied weights to the feet of the three and tossed their bodies into the ocean. FBI and other law enforcement you know, it would come back and say that Miles's story makes absolutely no sense, as no innocent person would feel the need to dispose of bodies or alter the crime scene, let alone assuming his brother's identity to attempt to collect one hundred fifty thousand dollars in bullion. It's hypothesized that, due to the lack of physical evidence abroad, abroad the. Hakuna matata Miles used his gun to force the trio out of the boat and into open waters, leaving them to either drown or be killed by sharks. Knowing that the three counts of murder were most likely coming his way, Miles traveled to Tijuana, Mexico. In an audibly groggy voicemail, he left for his mother. Miles said, quote, I love you, Mom, and I'm very sorry. I didn't do this. I swear to God, I didn't do this goodbye mexican authorities would later find miles's unconscious body on the beach after making a positive identification through fingerprints he was transferred to a california hospital where he was in a coma for two weeks before succumbing to his insulin overdose his death was ruled a suicide During the two weeks that he lay in a coma, his mother stood vigil by his bedside, awaiting whatever secrets Miles would end up taking with him. After his death, Miles and Bison would both be funeralized together, um, and you know Serena's family would go on to do what they needed to do, but there is no resolve because there are no bodies for bison serena and bertrand they are presumed to have you know died at sea at this point um so what had happened is this i did not use my dumpster juice alert because it's kind of difficult when you're dealing with this kind of relationship amongst siblings from the top the brothers were close in ways that they had no you know they were close in so many ways i'm sure that most likely on some level he miles began to resent his brother as soon as he realized that his brother was stealing his thunder in any capacity starting with the birthday which was something that was out of bison's control it's not like he had any control over being born on you know april 6th he had no choice in that he had no say in that you know just like miles had no choice in his birthday also being that day um there was probably a lot of competition amongst the two healthy competition i'm sure but also competition for affection because the because of however the dynamics were laid out amongst the family both men were extremely intelligent extremely caring giving loving but When Bison began to eclipse his older brother, who, you know, ironically was two inches shorter and 20 pounds heavier, you know, just a hair darker in complexion with eyes that bordered more on amber than green, you know... There were layers to it. When Bison began to accumulate and amass a nice amount of wealth with his career and was able to live fast and play hard, you know, as well as distribute his wealth amongst the family to help them achieve their goals and support them in every capacity, unconditionally loving them as well. You know, I'm sure that that probably ate at Miles. But somewhere, there also probably became a little bit of um, a sense of entitlement. Like, at some point in time, he had become accustomed to being helped and financially supported by his baby brother and so when his baby brother decided to no longer support him in all of his ventures and his lifestyle completely i'm sure that that you know upset him um when the gravy train stops, you know, that whole thing. Um, and so it seems to me as if he stalked his brother because they hadn't, they, the brothers hadn't really spoken. They hadn't seen their mom since the death of their grandmother when they attended her funeral. Um, and you know, Bison had you know, after his managers and his people who, you know, monitored his finances, I'm sure, helped him get his retirement game plan in order. were like, you know, you got to trim the fat someplace. Here are some places where you might be able to save money so that you can, you know, go ahead and live the life that you want and live it comfortably for as long as you want to. You know, I'm sure that Miles was on the chopping block and when he found out that his brother was going to be cutting him off and going to the South Pacific, he told somebody that he knew where his brother was located at. So he just shows up, knock, knock, he didn't even ask permission to come aboard. He just showed up. Who the fuck? just shows up on like a skidoo or whatever alongside a harbored vessel in the middle of the South Pacific. This isn't like, you know, going to Catalina. You know what I mean? You know, this isn't going from the Bay Area to Catalina. This is this is not a quick trip. It takes a minute, thousands of miles of water. I know, cause I've like, you know, been over there in Asia and stuff like that. I know it's. it's a, if you've done the trip, you know what I'm talking about. If you know, you know. So you know, he didn't just happen upon his brother and Serena on this boat which i mean it's a confined space and so that showed premeditation he also brought a gut which also showed premeditation i mean yeah granted he could have had a legitimate fear of pirates because pirates are a real fucking thing i'm gonna hit you with that echo Arr! Arr! but realistically who the hell was he to show up on his brother's vessel with a weapon okay sus as fuck just saying all right so there's that part you know again he showed up in the middle of literally nowhere i mean it's somewhere but it's in the middle of nowhere in in comparison you know as far as like you know the seclusion they were away and he was like you know what we're gonna mend this relationship but what he really meant was i'm going to smooth things over with you and force you you know force this to work out in this confined space in the middle of the ocean where nobody has a place to get away from this confined space and I'm going to get my way as your big brother you are going to give me what I want which is most likely some some decades okay and at first it was good but you know Serena, being a vibologist, you know, like myself, when she first started to see that, you know, there were glimpses of that darkness that I'm sure Bison had already confided in her. Bison had already told her, in you know, in their intimate talks that the relationship between his brother was strained and why, why it was. I'm sure he confided in her intimately the details of his childhood and the abuse that he, you know withstood alongside his brother he probably also talked about the bullying factor or whatever it was you know any way you cut it there was some shit that he had going on in his spirit that he was trying to distance himself from and make a better self out of that and being with his brother was not working she could she caught a glimpse The veil slipped a little bit between the two, and she was not with it. And she was like, you know what? I don't like it. And, you know, her best friend had said that in the 17 years that she had known her, that was the only time that she had ever known Serena to say anything cross about another human being. She read the vibe. She gave him a vibe check. And she told Bison, I don't like it. The vibe is off. It's either him or me. You've essentially... Asked me to drop my life to come sail the world with you. And now your brother has dropped in on our our love bubble. And you two are not getting along. I don't like it. So Bison, being a man who knew and recognized that Serena was his soulmate, was like, you know what? You're right. Also, besides the fact that he didn't want to be there with his brother. He had already put ocean between his brother and himself but his brother couldn't read the fucking room and decided to bully his way onto this catamaran and onto this trip after that three weeks you know i mean like after he basically knock knocked onto this boat you know the two jumps you know jumped ship the first time and there were three weeks where miles had to mull on this boat right with this captain alone without his brother because bison had escaped his grasp his plan had failed so for three weeks he had time to mull over how he was going to you know bring bison back in but as soon as they got back together in tahiti and got on board and bison laid down the and was like listen bro once we get to hawaii we're gonna have to part ways you know Serena and I have our own plans. It's been really great. You know, this will be a great trip. Great, you know, great brother bonding time. Be great to have you with us. You know, great story to tell the nieces and nephews and grandkids down the road. But we need our own time. And so we're going to conclude this trip once we get to Hawaii. And Miles knew that Bison was sincere, genuine, and serious about it. He freaked out and i believe that once he once the once the boat took off and you know miles started asserting himself and you know flexing you know being gregarious and overbearing off the rip you know f- from the time the anchor was raised shit was Plan, you know pre-planned to go wrong i believe that once he was told that they were going to be parting ways in hawaii and he most likely was also told that he wasn't getting a damn penny out of him he knew that this is it so he took it upon himself to do what he did which is most likely as it was hypothesized making his brother serena and the captain bertrand you know basically jump to their watery graves and then he sailed around for a while before docking the boat in that obscure location which was finally discovered five you know five weeks plus afterwards you know after you know their initial departure you know, so actually, it was longer than that because it was September 11th when the boat was found. But, you know, and then he tried to craft a way to get money, but he was caught instantly. And then once he was caught the first time, he was able to construct a little bit of breathing space by giving the authorities this cockamamie pirate story which really isn't so cockamamie because pirates are real argh and it's not far-fetched it's international waters there are no rules all bets are off you know but you know then he ran up to san francisco gave his sister this story of peril and it was killer be killed and you know at the end of the day this biblical story comes to a head when he cow you know in cowardice runs to tijuana taking the truth with him and overdoses on insulin now i'm sure he believed that he would die there and his body would be discovered and that would be it but you know Instead, everybody had to wait with bated breath for two weeks as he lie in a coma in Chula Vista before finally succumbing to what he did to himself, taking the truth with him, leaving so many unanswered questions, leaving his family with so many unanswered questions and so much loss, not just the loss of him but the loss of his brother Bison, Serena's family, and their loss of their beautiful loved one, and Captain Bertrand and his family. All of these people's lives were flipped upside down because of the reckless behavior and the plans that Miles, you know, basically put into motion and there was no turning back. Whew. Okay, you guys. So that's it. We, that's it. We've, we, we did it. Yay. We made it. I'm Kimberly. This is another episode of what had happened. I hope you guys really enjoyed this one. Um, There was so much more that I could have said about Bison as a player, but, I mean, like, I, I could only fangirl so hard. You know, drop a clues bomb for the Denver Nuggets, 1993 through 95. Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, Dikembe Matumbo, Robert Pack, the whole crew. Drop a clues bomb for assistance coaches, mike evans and gene littles and then head coach dan issel the horse of course at that time uh you know it was a great time for basketball i love this game (laughs) anyways you guys have a great evening i hope you enjoyed the episode i will be back soon with another lesser known true crime story here is your beautiful outro music